If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. We are going to be having Barbara Florshawn today to have a conversation with her about her great new book, You Have a Hammer, Building Grant Proposals for Social Change. Right before we get to that, though, I just want to share with you all that it's April. This is the time that new growth is starting to happen. And I know a lot of folks are starting to think about growth for themselves as well. So if you're feeling stuck or frustrated professionally and think an executive coach might be something that would be useful for you, that's something that I do a lot of through Successful Nonprofits. And so please reach out to me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com and let's see if a coaching relationship might be what helps you grow this year. Now, I am so very thrilled to be able to introduce Barbara Florsch. In a nutshell, she is a writer, a trainer, a grant writer, a curriculum developer, and an amazing consultant. Let me share with you just a little bit about her professional experience because she has a long and storied career. She was with a Boys and Girls Club for 25 years, followed by that, went over to the Grantsmanship Center where she was the chief of curriculum and training, And while doing those, she also has been a longtime author of a regular column in the Nonprofit Times. She recently transitioned that over to someone else as she is working on shifting into another act of her life, but a longtime author. And get this, and I am super impressed at this. Three years ago, she was tapped to update and expand the seminal book, Planning and Proposal Writing. And for any of us who have ever been responsible for grant writing, especially in our early 20s, when we went to our college professor and asked, what book should I get? Almost everybody recommended this 1971 book. And so super impressed that out of of all of the grant writing experts across the country, she would be the person who would be tapped 
to really expand and update this book. Barbara has just launched a consulting practice, and of course, she's also got this book out, You Have a Hammer, Building Grant Proposals for Social Change. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dolph. I'm super excited to be here and to talk about things about which I have a great deal of passion. And in your book and in your work and your Nonprofit Times articles, that passion really shines through. I have heard you say that grants are the stepchild of resource development. I think I know what you mean, but let's unpack that. Sure. Uh, I'll start with a story because stories really tell us a lot. I was at a great conference once and there were a lot of fund development people there, professionals who did uh, major gift requests and events and annual giving and that sort of thing. And I was pretty well known in the field for raising a whole lot of grant money. I'd been very successful. And when I was introduced to a woman there, one of the fund development people, she said, oh, you're the woman who raises all that junk money junk money. And I, I was taken aback by that. But I thought about it a lot. And I did recognize that people who write grant proposals and are awarded grants on behalf of their organization really don't have the same stature within the fund development, fundraising community as, as other people do. And I did want to speak to that because often it is said that, well, the reason for that is because individual donations. In 2018, individual donations were around 292, almost $293 billion. And if you add up the foundation grants at about 76 million in that year, and then you add up corporate grants at about 20 million, you see the grant pie is a lot less than that individual giving. But when you add in government, which is not generally thought of as philanthropy because those are public dollars. When you add in federal government grants at about six over 600 billion in 2018, and that doesn't even count county and state, the field of grants, the opportunity to do good work with grants is huge and actually dwarfs individual giving. Now we could have a long discussion about the pros and cons of each, but my position is that grant seeking done right is a powerful, powerful tool. And when integrated with strategic plan of an organization and with an overall fund development plan, grants can really put rocket fuel behind your mission. And so I think it's a mistake to undervalue grants work within an organization I think that because it is undervalued, it is often not coordinated or supervised in a way that's most advantageous to pursuing mission. So you and I are in full alignment on this, but I'd like for your permission to play devil's advocate for a minute, just so we can explore this a little bit more. I'd be willing to bet that conference attendee who said to you, oh, you raise all that junk money probably felt that way because they had seen grants that have grown gardens that bloomed and then withered and died. Absolutely. The truth is that most people are not educated about grants work when they start doing grants work. 
they, they find themselves in a position where they can think, they can write, somebody looks at them, they say, you got some time on your hands, go write this grant proposal and you know nothing about it. And because grants are often dealt with in that way, they're often um, done in a way that does not place them or position them to continue the impact that they're gonna achieve after the grant funding ends. And so it's sort of flashing the pan here, flashing the pan there. You get some money, you lose some money. What that produces is what I have termed an accordion organization, where you end up having a lot of money and you're feeling flush and then you shrink and you lose staff and then you go out and run after whatever grants you can get and you have a lot of money and it's back and forth. So you end up with stressed staff and the inability to pursue any sort of mission strategically if you allow yourself to do that. So if you want to make social change, because my position is that grants work in and of itself done right is a very specific kind of social activism. And if you believe that and do the work right, you're, you're not gonna have a flash in the pan here or there. That said, sometimes you can do a lot of good work for a long time and then that work will go away and that'll be sad. But if it has produced really good impact that can keep growing, that's good too. It's just you have to think about what you're doing and design programs, design grant proposals, grant requests in a way that positions them to have enough impact and legs that they can keep walking once the money's gone. So can you give an example of that, of an organization that got grant funding and that funding was designed in such a way that even after the money stopped flowing into the program, the program continued to have an impact? Oh, I have so many examples. My favorite example is Return House. It's a transitional living program for young people coming out of jail, young men coming out of jail. So one night I was driving home from work and it was dark and cold and I was listening to the radio and the radio announcer gave statistics about a very high percentage of young men in this very small Vermont community that were involved with the justice system talked to some probation people the next year, next day, because I had been very disturbed by it and found out that it was basically a revolving door in jail, out of jail, in jail, out of jail. And why? Because there was nothing in the community once they got there to support them and help them learn how to be in the community successfully. So talked to my executive director, started talking to everybody we could talk to about four years later, after community meetings and meetings with churches and justice centers and correction and, and a labor, Department of Labor, we had Return House, a transitional living program from young men coming out of jail. That was almost 20 years ago now. The grants are long gone. I'm not saying that maybe they don't get another one to do some employment work, but we designed it in a way that brought in enough partnership from other organizations and looked at long-term funding through things like Medicaid and employment insurance and things like that so that we could have a base to build on to keep that program going. Part of what I like about that, Barbara, is I think when you design your program that way and you design your proposal that way, it also helps you answer 
one of the toughest questions on a lot of grant proposals, which is, how is this program going to be sustainable when the grant ends? It absolutely does. And it's an obligation. It's a moral obligation in a lot of instances. You can't go put a community through what we put the community through to get to the plan for this transitional living house and then say, whoops, the grant's gone. Guess we're out of here. You know, that's just at some point you have a moral obligation for some of that. And then the other thing is that funders do ask, how are you going to sustain this program. And I actually object to that question because the real question is, how are you going to sustain the impact? Uh, I've been involved in work where we brought new programming into schools and it was so successful that when we left, the school kept it going. We did not need to keep it going. It was integrated into the curriculum. So it's a way of looking at things. It's not about your organization. It's not about the grant do you bring into your organization? It's about the impact and how to sustain that. But I would imagine that that would be an acceptable answer to the question, how are you going to sustain this program? You know, the answer would be, we will sustain the impact of the program by creating something that could be integrated into the operations of the schools. That's right. And you have to realize that when you do that, of course, the schools will say, yeah, we'll consider that, but they're not going to guarantee to do it till they see your evaluation data. You know, was it or was it not impactful? But it's a plan. Let's take a moment and talk about that evaluation, because I kind of feel like, especially with foundation grants where evaluation is not required, so often now government money wants some type of an evaluation, but so often foundations are not yet looking for a real evaluation other than the numbers of people served. So if I'm a grant writer and I'm thinking about how to help my program or my organization develop an evaluation, what should I be thinking about? Well, I would like to encourage every organization, every nonprofit, to become what I call an evaluative organization, an organization that values self-assessment. Because if you do not look at what you're doing and ask yourself, how do I know this is making a difference, then I think that that's an abdication of good management. So I encourage everyone to include evaluation work in every program they plan and in every proposal they submit, even if it is not required. Setting up an evaluation, I teach this, and it's sort of a, it's a long topic, but let me just say that the long and the short of it is, the question is not how many people showed up or how many people you had in the classroom. The question is, what changed because of that? What changed? And so that's what you're gonna be looking to capture. There are a lot of different ways to capture it, but you want to look at what changed and hold your feet to the fire to say, if we're not looking at this, we're not doing our job right. And if I can also say, be honest about what the actual outcomes are. So if you are hoping to achieve a specific outcome and you fell short of that, be honest with yourself and with your funder and say, hey, we think we need to tweak the following things. Maybe it costs more money, less money. I don't know. But we need to tweak the following things so that we can better be able to meet that target. You're so right, Dolph. In, in my book, one of the things I bring up is that the mission of a nonprofit is never to do things. That's not the mission. The purpose of a program is never to do activities. It is to have some kind of impact, to create some kind of positive change. And because of that, evaluation is essential. And 
you don't start it. You don't wait till you get to the end of the program and say, whoops, I guess that didn't work. You have to look at yourself as you go along. And then at logical points in implementing anything, say, is it working? And if it's not, step right up. Be transparent. And I've done this. I remember once a staff member brought in a report to me that basically said nothing's happening, nothing's changing, and we're not doing much. And I said, we need to talk about this. And once we did, realized that the program really needs some adjustments, some issues within the community had changed since that program was planned, put it totally on stop, called the funder, had a meeting, redesigned the approach. The funder was very supportive because the funder did not make that grant award to do things. It was to to make something good happen. Right. I, I will share with you from my perspective, I think that's egregious, but what's even more egregious is when the person responsible for writing the grant report glosses over the problems and glosses over the failures and acts like they aren't actually there. That does no one any good. When you accept a grant award from a funder, you are entering a partnership with that funder. Your partners in change is the way I like to say it. And if you can't be honest with your partner, what kind of a relationship are you going to have? Honesty is imperative for moving the whole field forward, for moving your mission forward. And if you behave in any other way, you get basically, eventually, you will lose the respect of the funder, the respect of other staff members. Basically, it's a lack of integrity. Right. So. I got to share with you, I I do a good little bit of interim executive director engagements. And, you know, oftentimes when you're doing an interim, you're coming in and you're sort of picking up the ball from where someone else had handed it to you. Or in some cases, they're no longer there. So they literally left it on the field. And there was this one situation that I encountered where an organization, I'm going to change numbers and names and that kind of thing to protect everybody involved. The organization had requested and received a $50,000 grant about eight or nine months before I started. But in their proposal, they promised about, let's just say, a quarter million dollars of services. And so when I saw the report, I was kind of like, this seems like fluff. It seems like we're not really being truthful. We need to go to this funder and we need to draft a report. And then you need to have me call the funder up and say, I'm ready to send you this report. I'd like to email it to you, and then I'd like to walk you through it. So can we schedule a time when I can send it to you and then immediately walk you through it? And that's actually kind of how I started the conversation with the funder. I said, it appears to me that we asked for 50000 and promised a quarter million dollars of services. And the program officer at that foundation kind of laughed and said, that's what it appeared to us like, too. I'm like, good. We're on the same page. Now, can we talk about how we move this forward? <laughs> Oh, yes. I mean, there is an imbalance between those who give and those who ask, between grant seekers and grant makers. But the way that we're really going to make progress towards the change that we are all working towards is transparency and openness and, and stepping up. There's nothing to be ashamed of if a program is not doing exactly what you thought it would. Often it's a bold experiment. And so it's nothing to be ashamed of. But it would be something to be ashamed of if you try to sweep it under the rug or not learn from it and not be transparent with your partner, who is your funder. And furthermore, if you were to happen to be doing that with a federal agency, you can get into real big trouble. (laughs) Well, and let me just say, even if you're not doing with a federal agency, if an organization drafts a report that's not 
true and accurate and sends it in the mail, that's mail fraud. The foundation may choose not to prosecute, right? But let's face it, you know, if you mail lies through the mail and you've gotten money in exchange for it, (laughs) I'm pretty sure you could be in some trouble. Um, So one of the things that I love about your book is you have a couple of chapters on ethics. And I think it's one of the reasons for people to, to really read your book because they're, you know, as grant writers, as program administrators and as agency administrators, we've got to be working in an ethical manner. And so I love the fact that that you really highlight that in your book. Yes. I mean, ethics is all. I mean, I don't know what you what you've got. If you don't have your integrity and if you're not ethical, you don't have anything. So that's just where I start from. That's where I start. But when you look at ethics within grants work, I mean, I've had in my classes actually somebody raise their hand and say, is it okay to make up data? And I almost just was frozen in place to even hear that question. And boy, can I answer that? But I have encountered, uh, I, I, know, I know so much about the data of the different issues I work on. And once I encountered a situation which a staff member drafted a part of a proposal and gave it to me and I said, where in the world did that data come from? I've never seen that data. I know the data in this field. Where did you get that? Made it up. No. I mean, so I'm saying in what I'd like to say about grants work is that it is done right social activism. There's a very large pot of money that think of that as fuel. Think of that as possibility that's there for change. As an organization, I want to encourage all organizations to look at this in a way where you integrate that grants work into what you're doing strategically so that it becomes all that it can be. Because if you get into situations where you don't do it properly or give it the level of weight, don't consider the weight of it as you should, then you get more into these situations where people are not understanding, well, I'll just gloss this over. You know, I'll just do that and that. I think that the more we encourage people to understand how a grant award can impact the direction of an organization, can steer an organization. I have a, I've coined a word called rogue grant proposals. I don't know if you can imagine what that means, but some organizations have give this work such little weight that people may be off in a corner somewhere writing up a grant proposal and just sending it off. And the administration may not even know it's gone. So they, and when I talk about this in classes, hands go up, eyes, head, you know, hand, hand to the head. Yes, they've seen rogue proposals. So how, how do we deal with this? We look at grants as what they are. The only reason you would ever ask for grant funding is to make something better, to right a wrong, to improve a problem, to give opportunity that was not there. And so it is social activism. And if you can understand how that influences an organization's steering itself towards its mission, you start to give that more weight that work more weight, more direction, more consideration, more integration into the whole overall organization planning. And if you, if you look at the huge pot of money, if you combine foundation and corporate and government grants from the feds, from the state, when you look at that huge pot of money, you start to say, you know, we really need to take this work more seriously and be sure that the people 
who come into this work understand the ethics of it. Uh, part of that ethics is cultural relevance. Um, I write a, a lot about that in my book, I think. I mean, it's, I'm a short writer. It's not like I go on and on. <laughs> but this work is more important and more impactful than it often gets credit for being. And therefore, it's often when if it's undervalued and kept more in the corner, then it's not, it doesn't do what it can. I've got one last question for you before we move to the off-the-map question, but it it's kind of a hot-button question, and several of our listeners in a recent listener survey actually asked us to address this particular issue. A lot of organizations, especially cash-strapped ones or smaller and medium-sized ones that really want to grow, sometimes struggle with turning down money that isn't right for them. So sometimes that for them, I think that means not applying, but other times I think it means getting an award letter, reviewing the terms of the award and realizing, no, it's really not a good fit. How does an organization turn that money down? In any situation in which money is involved, this is Barbara philosophy, but it's born of many years of grants experience. You've got to be willing to walk away if it's not right. It can, it can mean maybe a staff member is going to get a day or two chopped off of his or her time right then. It can mean that something that needs to be replaced won't be. There could be negative impacts. But in the long run, if you accept money that's not really right for your organization, you're going to start drifting. You're going to do mission drift. You'll, you'll, you'll drift this way. And then the money comes. You get more money, you drift the other way. In my career, the organization I have worked with, organizations have definitely turned down money uh, when it was not right for them. But what they've done is, is carefully scrutinize the requirements of the money before applying. Because applying for a grant is a, is a laborious, often a laborious process. And if there's something about that money that would cause you to, to do something you don't want to do that's sort of against your philosophy or take you in a direction that's not really where you wanted to be going. In the long run, it will hurt you. Uh, people who work in organizations, often small, usually cash strapped, this is not unusual. Um, I think you have to be willing to walk away. If you don't, in the long run, it will hurt the organization and your cause more than it will help it. One of the other things that I've seen organizations do, and I actually have done this myself when I've been an executive director, is to make the strategic decision to not reapply for money. So sometimes after you get the grant, and you're hopefully it's only a year grant, let's say, and you know, you're eight months in and you just think to yourself, this grant is more trouble than it's worth. I'm the executive director of a multi-million dollar agency and they want me to attend a weekly meeting that's 90 minutes long. And then they want a data person to produce a weekly report and share, like at some point you look at this and you say, for this 10 or $25,000, we're spending more of our energy in terms of value on actually keeping this grant than we are in providing the service. Oh, Dolph, that's so true. And you know, there's so many nuances and nooks and crannies of this discussion we get get into. For example, should an organization accept a grant award that will not provide any 
indirect cost or administrative overhead. That's a big discussion, full cost funding. So there are lots of nooks and crannies and maybe we can talk about them again some other time. I know time's getting short, but I do know that sometimes when you have a grant award, implementing what you need to do consumes some of the muscle and bone of your organization. And because of that, if you keep accepting grant awards without any legitimate support from that grant for administrative overhead, eventually, once again, you become weak. And so sometimes you'll say, this is important enough that we're going to do it anyway. And other times you're going to say, no, it's really important. We've already done that 10 times and it's getting hard. We can't keep doing that. Right. And I just also kind of have to reflect that if you're an organization whose budget is over 50000 or $100,000 a year, so still a relatively small organization, you can't afford to have that many $1,000 grants that are not just unrestricted grants. Like, so, you know, $1,000 grants that are restricted to programs and you have to report on how you spent them. At some point, you know, you can't go out and grow into a quarter million dollar or a million dollar organization because you're literally chasing $1,000 grants. And one point that I do make in my book is that just because you need money does not mean you need a grant. It can be a lot easier for you to go out and request some donations from businesses, from individuals to get that $1,000, to get that $5,000. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth what it takes to put it together, to monitor it, to report on it? Isn't that really unreasonable for an amount where you could just go ask for that in some other way? Oh, my gosh, yes. Now, Barbara, I've got a great off-the-map question for you. I have really dug down in the research to try to figure out, because you, again, you've had this long storied career, and it's really difficult to find a good off-the-map question for someone who has had such a successful career and really has been a, a renaissance person in their career. But I think I've got it for you. In doing my research, and I know you'd not shared this with me, but I found it anyway, I learned that in the last half decade, you have traded your log cabin of 32 years for a practically passive energy home in Vermont, which is a really cold part of the world. Talk to me. Yes, I lived for many years in sort of this idyllic kind of snow globe, hallmark snow globe kind of picture of a log cabin on 15 acres down three and a half miles of dirt road, moose in the backyard, bears in the backyard, all over the place. It was large. And eventually my husband and I said, you know, let's give it up and become transient for a couple of years and decide what we really want to do. So we sold the house and we moved around while we were just trying to decide what to do. And we found a piece of land, a little over five acres with mountain views and view of a nice, beautiful barn. And we built almost a passive house. It's only not passive because we wanted a gas fireplace and to cook with a gas stove. It's got very thick concrete floors. It's got windows have the same R value as regular walls, insulated walls. And the whole house basically doesn't have a heating system. It's got a one head heat pump in Vermont where it can get to be 35 below and it keeps the house warm. So we are very happy. It's quite modern. It's beautiful. You have to have found a really specialized contractor to build that house. 
We did. We had done renovations on our log cabin and we found him during that time. And he's a he's well known for his expertise in passive houses. And we actually designed the house, the layout and everything with him. And we recommend and we to all other people. We've shown this house. He keeps bringing people. Can I show people your house? So we, we probably had 20 people come to see the house to see if they can build one like it. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a great story and how very inspirational as well. It takes some real guts to say, okay, we're going to sell our house and be transient and live in this liminal space for a couple of years while we're figuring it out. Good for you. Thanks, Dolph. It's been a real joy to talk to you. Well, gosh, I am so glad that you've joined us. And listeners, you know, you're going to have to reach out to Barbara because she is just really that incredible. And her URL is barbaraflorsch.com. And at her website, you can learn more about her. You can read her blog. And not only that, she has a newsletter that you can subscribe to. And I would strongly recommend. Again, this is someone who wrote regularly for the Nonprofit Times, has updated and expanded a book and has a book of her own out as well. This is someone whose weekly emails you want to be getting. And she also asked me to share the organization that she used to work with, and that's the Grantsmanship Center. And their URL is tgci.com. And I'll share with you, I think Barbara and I are in alignment that the Grantsmanship Center does the best training in the field of grant writing. So make sure you check them out as well. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us today. Dolph, thank you. All right, listeners, if you missed the URL, barbaraflourish.com, or just weren't really sure how to spell that, go over to successfulnonprofits.com, and we will have both of those links, the Grantsmanship Center and her website, in our show notes. Also, don't forget, if you're thinking about growth for yourself, if you feel like you need just a little bit of help to reach that next level, then go to Successful Nonprofits as well and check out the one-on-one coaching that we offer. And finally, if you liked this episode, there are two that you've really got to check out. The first is episode 165, Four Tips for Efficient and Effective Fundraising with Patton McDowell. And the second is episode 57, Collaborative Grant Seeking with Bess DeFarber. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, I've got to give you this disclaimer. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And quite frankly, it's Friday, so I've not even shaved today. So I'm an unshaven person who's not either an accountant nor an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. And you also know, because I say this every single time, if you find yourself in need of a licensed professional, please ask colleagues, get recommendations, reach out to me if none of your colleagues have any really great ideas. I might be able to point you in the right direction, but find the licensed person that you need.